W-P-H-A-T. You're listening to the number one health and wellness podcast, the place where health and consciousness connect perfectly, perfectly healthy, healthy and tone, tone radio, radio, radio with your host, Darren McDuffie. And now prepare to get fat. What's up, peeps, and welcome to an episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I am your show host, Darren McDuffie, alias Fat Man, because I help you become perfectly healthy and toned. Today's show is a really awesome show I did with Julia Ross on her book, The Mood Cure. This book was written in 2003, and Julia has two other books more recently, The Craving Cure, which just came out on December 12th. And I'll have Julia back on to talk about that in the future. But today, again, the book is called The Mood Cure. She has one other book called The Diet Cure, and these deal with depression and addiction. So if you're someone out there who is suffering from depression, you may be fatigued, whatever's going on. We talk about how Julia discovered amino acid therapy to boost the brain's neurotransmitter. And don't let that language throw you off because we talk a little bit about it and you get an understanding more and complete understanding about how, again, to boost the brain's neurotransmitters and go on to live a happy, more productive life. Now, before I get into the show, just wanted to give you a few reminders. Please go to PerfectlyHealthyAndTone.com, click on the store link, and look at the store. In the store, I have a cleanse by Diane Kayser, and I understand that she's changing the cleanse to be a bit more robust, so you can check that out. And also the SIBO Summit. Summit is no longer active, but you can purchase it because it's a digital product, and you have those experts at your fingertips where you can watch them over and over again. So if you're someone who is suffering from digestive issues and may not have gotten a good explanation from your doctor, I would advise you to go and check out the SIBO Summit. Also, if you have any feedback for the show, if you have any questions, or if you just want to give me a big up, so to speak, you can email me at darren at perfectlyhealthyandtone.com. That's darren at perfectlyhealthyandtone.com. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, I would appreciate you leave a review. Whether good or bad, leave a review. It helps me out. So now let's get into Julia's bio. Julia Ross is a world leader in the use of nutritional therapy for the treatment of mood problems, eating disorders, and addictions. After 10 years as a psychotherapist working with individual adults and adolescents, families, and groups in a variety of in-psychiatric and outpatient settings, Ross began to direct programs. Some of her early achievements included the founding of the San Francisco Bay Area's first programs for food addicts and for drug-addicted adolescents and their families. And just as a backstory on this particular show, we've been trying to make this show happen for three years. First, my internet was down. We couldn't do the show. And then something happened. We got our wires crossed where Julia did not receive one of my emails. And then she went into writing her other book. So I thought that would just be a little interesting backstory for you before the show. But again, one love. Enjoy the show. Oops, and I almost forgot about what you're going to learn in the show, so check it out. Why is stabilizing blood sugar important for stabilizing mood? Is it possible to balance mood disorders without animal protein in a diet? Very interesting answers for my people out there who are vegan. Are mood disorders ever too far gone to respond to amino acid therapy? What is a guaranteed way to slow down thyroid function and create mood disorders? A lot of people don't know this, and Julia gives a very good answer. Why do women make less serotonin? And now how does that affect them when it comes to depression? And as a bonus, you'll learn why Julia Ross actually likes the ketogenic diet 
And one big thing she really loves about this particular diet, and maybe even a drawback as well. So again, enjoy the show. Coincidentally for this show, I wasn't able to do a Skype interview. Normally I would do a Skype interview and then add some audio enhancements to the show. So I had to use the Blog Talk platform. For those of you who've been following the show know that in the past I was just using Blog Talk and it didn't sound too great. So what I did was download it from Blog Talk and then add the audio enhancements. So it may sound a little bit different from previous shows, but it should sound better just wanted you to know that again enjoy the show hey what's up peeps this is darren mcduffie alias fat man because i help you become perfectly healthy and toned and for my first time doing a live show in a while for those of you who've been listening to this show know that i usually record the show via skype and then add some audio enhancements to it so it can sound better but due to these circumstances tonight i'm just doing a live show and what i will probably do is just download this show and again add the audio enhancements to it so it can sound a little bit better but this interview was an interview that I've been wanting to do. It's been in like two and a half, maybe three years in the making. We got wires crossed, things happened and weren't able to do the interview here. But tonight we are finally doing it. And I have Julia Ross, who is the author of The Mood Cure. She's also the author of The Diet Cure. And as of December 12th, she's the author of The Craving Cure, which we'll kind of talk a little bit about tonight, and we'll probably blend the two books together. But Julia Ross, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. How are you tonight? I'm fine. Thanks, Darren. Thank you for coming on. Like I said, this this interview has been, what, two and a half years, maybe three years in the making. Yeah, yeah. You and I talked. Man, I think I was working at a food sensitivity testing company, yes. and you were one of my clients, and I called you on the phone and I was like, is this the, the woman who uh, was talking to Sean Croxton maybe two or three years ago on the phone? <laughs> and you and I ended up having like an hour conversation. I remember sitting there at my desk, but I've since moved on from that position. But it was just very enlightening to talk to you about food and mood and everything that was going on. So I'm glad to have you tonight. Well, I disappeared. Nobody's been able to track me down for the last three years, really, because I've been working so hard on, on, on my new book. But this time of year, I'm really happy to do an interview that touches on on mood because this is literally the dark time of the year, you know, physically and emotionally for a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people are unhappy now with the holidays because maybe they don't have someone they're not in a relationship or something happened. And now people are like thinking about all those different things and a lot of depression going on, a lot of sadness here. But looking back on your background, I usually ask people to talk about their background and how they got into help. But yours is so interesting. I kind of wanted to throw some things out there. You started in 1970 in psychotherapy. How right. did that how did that career come about? And take us through that and how you started getting into the mood cure and using amino acids and things of that nature. Well, it was definitely not a straight course. I uh, had a lot of uh the troubles that a lot of my peers had in the 60s, finding my way, uh, and I ended up working in a psychiatric halfway house um, as a resident manager through various, you know, friends and family connection and found, discovered that I was really good at uh, talking to people and loved it. And uh, so I was there for about three years and saved my money and went back to school and went to graduate school. And I was, you know, just in the pink. <laughs> it was it was the perfect track for me. I was very happy. I, but towards the end of my graduate program, I ran out of money. And the only internship that paid was in an addiction treatment program. And uh, talk about depression. I thought this is going to be the most depressing placement I could ever have. But 
I, I need the income, so I'm going to do it. And uh, it turned out to be the most enlightening internship I could have ever had. I learned psychotherapeutic techniques that nobody else was really doing, except except for psychotherapists in the addiction field, you know, being direct, valuing truth and honesty, and uh, cutting to the chase rather than, you know, keeping it very slow and um, kind of standard psychotherapeutic jargon. So uh, that was great. And then about seven years into that, I had converted from intern to employee to supervisor, and I was made director of outpatient programs in this large agency. And right at that same moment, the uh, crack cocaine epidemic broke on us. And instead of having about 50% success rate, which we'd had with the alcoholics who were our primary clients before that moment, we had no success. Twenty, you know, in 24 hours, we would have 100% of our clients relapsing, and this was true all over the country. So I had to look somewhere else because psychotherapy, and we were really offering the best of all the new psychotherapy plus 12-step programs. And so I was very, very fortunate at that at that moment. People in the addiction field were exposed to a whole new perspective on addiction. And that perspective was that it was entirely biochemical and specifically neurochemical. In other words, the the nerve the nerves in the brain, specifically neurotransmitters, which I know we'll talk about later, determine our, our moods and our appetite, our ability to experience pleasure. And to summarize quickly, one of the scientists who was a leader in this uh, in the brain scientists who were studying addiction did some clinical studies showing that the amino acids or protein constituents that these pleasure-producing, mood-generating parts of the brain depended on, there were only five of them, were deficient and that that was why people were experiencing negative moods and being drawn to addictive substances and then developing cravings. And he did some studies showing that giving people, his studies were pretty low dose. He wasn't a clinician. He just decided to use low doses of the well-known uh, amino brain fuels made a huge difference. So I had a nutritionist on staff. I was very interested in nutrition, but in terms of diet, getting very far because most of our clients, uh, when they tried to give up drugs and alcohol, uh, you know, their craving for sugar went through the roof and they weren't able to improve their diet, but we were trying. And those few people who could improve their diet did much better. However, we decided to do, I decided we were going to do a pilot project using the amino acids. And we used, we ended up using stronger doses than the pilot project and found that we got even better results with crack addicts, with alcoholics, with the uh, pot addicts, you know, with the opiate addicts that were coming in. So a couple years later, when I started a program for food addicts on the Overeaters Anonymous model, uh, but providing counseling and nutritional therapy, we decided to use the same nutrients and we got even better results. So I just couldn't look back. You know, I was a psychotherapist and I was forced to become an expert in neuronutrition, brain fueling, you know, care and feeding, nutritional care and feeding. Uh, of the brain and the specific sites that determine our our mood state and uh, our ability to generate a normal appetite. Has it been your experience with psychotherapy? Because I've I've had people on before who have talked about psychotherapy, and it seems to me as though they started like you started, but they realized that the psychotherapy wasn't working. It was something that they needed to go to that was a little bit further. And it sounds like you were going towards that too, because you experienced the failure rates with alcoholism and drug addiction. 
But for someone who's addicted to alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, is it advantageous for them to go through psychotherapy or should they be looking at wholly something biochemical causing? Well, there's no reason not to do both. But we, but now it's clear to me and 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 it's clear. See, this this development occurred before Prozac came on. So antidepressants were not a big deal in those days. So people didn't have, you know, much of an option if, if their mood was negative. Now, other than psychotherapy, now we know that the biochemistry is the primary problem. So let's address that first because that takes, you know, 24, 48 hours to rule out. If that doesn't solve, you know, most of the problem, then psychotherapy may be in order. And in any case, once you have the brain chemistry organized and once your mood is your own uh, and not, uh, the, you know, caused by some aberration in your brain chemistry, then then you can decide, you know, okay, I have been through a lot and I'm very stable now, but I, I'd like to I'd like to straighten out, you know, some of those relationship tangles I've been in. I'd like to do some family or couple counseling. Then it's very very productive, incredibly productive. Uh, we've uh, one of the things I talk about in the mood cure right in the beginning is that when we started working with food addicts. They were almost all women, and almost all of them had early childhood sexual and other traumatizing abuse histories. And so they were asking the same question, you know, and we were saying what all people in the addiction field tend to say, which is, let's get you stabilized first off the substances, you know, kind of leveled out in a in a basic day-to-day way, and then you'll have the strength to face these things. Otherwise, they're going to propel you right into relapse. So we said the same thing. And our clients said, well, that would be okay, except that we keep on thinking about it. You know, who are we supposed to talk about if, you know, this stuff to, if not our counselors? So finally, after months of that, and meanwhile, they're on the aminos, they're on the diet, and they're doing really well. So we thought, okay, let's do an experiment. Let's for a month um, open up, you know, these doors and and do some counseling on early childhood trauma and if it results in relapse, we know we've, you know, we've entered the, that realm too early. But if not, it could be very, very useful to get it out of their system now. And maybe with the support of the nutrient program, they'll be more stable in the face of it. And sure enough, we had not one relapse. And our people not only didn't relapse, but they went through the process of clarifying and recovering from the early trauma twice as fast as uh, huh. as the clients you know who waited a year into sobriety to tiptoe into that realm so so the, i hope that answers your question you know it could be yeah both, it does because it, start yeah, with the brain both. and that chemistry yeah start with the com uh, com do a combination so I, that does answer my question you wrote your book in 2003 and the mood cure right yeah you took the write this book, obviously, the new book, The Craving Cure, which we'll kind of talk about near the end of the interview. You're still, I'm going to assume you're still doing the work and seeing people in, in your clinic. Is it is it getting better or is it getting worse? Well, um, we don't get anybody who doesn't have mood problems, basically. But <laughs> our, <laughs> So I can't uh, tell you too much about the population out there. Uh, they're using okay. more and different antidepressants, so the SSRIs, you know, the first batch, starting with Prozac, aren't enough. Now there are others that are being used, and uh, so I would say in general things are getting worse. What we have seen, and this is since the mood cure came out, you know, well, I would say it came out in late 
2003. And by 2007, you know, about three and a half years later, we went into the, the, the major recession and there was that whole financially driven mood, mood problem that, that was unleashed on us, making all the biochemistry, you know, even more vulnerable in the brain. And what we found was that we were getting a huge number of people with undiagnosed functional bipolar spectrum disorders. Uh, so they were functioning and they just thought they were moody. They didn't realize that they had a, a cyclical back and forth that, that actually was a result of a mood chemistry imbalance that was different than the garden variety depression, anxiety, stress that we deal with, with simply with the amino acids. So that seems to be a big new development that the, the number of people with even more complex brain chemistry issues is increasing. And we, it, that shouldn't be a big surprise because the bipolar spectrum, so manic depression is one extreme, and then we've got minor, fairly minor mood swings at the other end. That, that whole dynamic uh, is known to be genetically driven. And our diet is so destructive to, you know, our genetic programming in addition to everything else that it's no wonder that we're having an increase in um, genetically derived problems that we weren't seeing nearly as much of before. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that because when we dealing with nutrition, and I've been studying nutrition for a number of years, one of the things in nutrition is nothing is genetic when it comes to nutrition, when it comes to illness. I say you don't get high blood pressure because your mom had it. You don't get cancer because someone else had it. But in That's right. Book. Degenerative diseases are not genetic. Oh, That's right. Yes. But I wanted to make But there that are some other conditions that are. So, you know, there are some physical illnesses that are genetically transmitted. And but we're certainly more likely to get anything that, that's genetically transmitted if our diet isn't good. But it's the degenerative diseases, you know, the heart disease and the diabetes of all things, uh, greater than anything, um, that have nothing to do with with genetics that never existed. In the 1960s, there was less than 2% of the population diabetic. Now it's over 50%. Wow. That is not a genetic dynamic, that's for sure. Yeah, that's just a, a food-related dynamic. I have, I was just talking to a cousin the other day when I was traveling and had some news. And on one side of my family, there are it just seems like there are some mood related problems and it started with the mother and then it went to the daughter and then it went to the younger daughter and all of them seem to have the same thing. So, you know, my question was around that the whole genetic thing and passing these mood related orders down. And then with what you're doing now, is there come a point when we're, when it's too far gone, like can't use the no. minerals, you have to use, there's never a point when it's too there's far There's never gone. a point if you have a simple deficiency of neurotransmitters. There's never a point where it gets too serious. But you can have other brain chemistry disorders and imbalances that are, are different. And, and bipolar disorder is one of them. Psychosis is another one. And they just don't respond in the same way. So, for example, if, if we get somebody who's bipolar or psychotic, they're typically the psychotic clients who have come to us have been on medication and they still don't feel that good, but they're not feeling crazy. And uh, we can really help them as long as they're on a medication that is taking care of that part of the brain that we don't as yet know how to correct nutritionally. You know, I'm, I'm convinced that if we had any sort of a budget to explore the nutritional remedies for mood, dis you know, serious mood disorders, we would we would have solved them a long time ago. But right now, w we certainly don't know 
how to prevent a psychotic break or you know that that kind of severity of uh, of of brain disorder or or a uh, a bipolar disorder so we can assist with the part of these disorders that have to do with not having enough neurotransmitter activity but that's not the only thing that that can happen to the brain that is by far the most common cause of depression and anxiety overstress you know unexplained oversensitivity and loneliness, fatigue and and poor attention, that all those things are the most common mood problems that exist and they are very easily addressed physiologically, you know, nutritionally with these amino acid therapies. Yeah, you just described probably about 99% of population. That's right. Yeah, about 99% of population because I guess interviewing other people and just studying the biggest complaint when someone goes to the doctor is fatigue. So that describes most of the population there. When you're working with someone who has psychosis or bipolar, are you using amino acids in combination with that to help them feel a little bit better? Okay. Yeah, we've we've, uh, been very fortunate. There's a, a local psychiatrist who has come to my trainings and and it loves the nutritional approach, but is not an expert in it herself. Uh, what she is an expert in is assessing what kind of brain chemistry imbalance people have and whether or not the nutrients are going to be helpful and and, and if they need to be combined. And what we've found over time is that they almost always need to com- be combined with bipolar, uh, with low-dose medication. So what we've learned is that people can get on a dose that's so low that they don't have side effects, but they have to be on something that will stabilize that chemistry that tends to swing. We can increase the positive moods, but we can't stop the neurotransmitters from their shifting if they're going up and down. And that's something that medication can do pretty well, and most of our clients have been able to do wonderfully on a combination of amino acids and a medication that's a mood stabilizer. It's a whole class of medicine, you know, psychiatric medication that most people never never get near because most doctors and psychotherapists and psychologists and general public are so afraid of the whole idea of, of having a bipolar diagnosis that they don't even go there, let alone uh, try the medication. A lot of psychiatrists, of course, start at very high doses and, 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 you know, frighten people away too. But so this is what we've learned since 2007. Uh, the only people that were coming to us, you know, during the, the, the recession were people who were so desperate because their mood problems were more complicated. And it took us a while to figure out, hey, this is a new of uh, mood problems that's slightly different. Some overlap, but... And uh, finally, we figured it out. And so there's some good solutions. And nutrition is key. You know, people who are bipolar need a stable diet. And they need a well-balanced mm-hmm. diet to balance that brain chemistry out and keep it in order. I, I don't want to put the audience, but I wanted to ask this question because it's, it's very intriguing to me. But from a perspective of ethnicity, because I know in a book you talk about, I believe one gentleman was Native American and he came in. But from a position of ethnicity, are there, you've seen everybody on the spectrum, Native American, I'm sure you've seen African Americans, you've seen Asian. Caucasians, uh-huh. Asians, yeah, you're in California, <laughs> you have a big population there. Yeah. But from a perspective of ethnicity, are there any groups that are more susceptible to having these mood disorders versus another group? Well, I would still say that the Native Americans are the most sensitive of all to toxic food. You know, they've been exposed to it. 
the most recently, but African Americans are next because they've only been exposed to it, you know, a little longer coming over here, being exposed to European food and alcohol. So, but we've we've worked a lot with Native Americans because their response is so incredible uh and, you know, the drums started beating that there was a solution and Native Americans are, you know, they're living right, you know, out here anyway near the lands where they originally uh, where they originated and so they know what they used to eat. And they know that it was a paleo diet, essentially, and that they could adapt to certain foods. But one of our clients uh, was in his middle 20s, and uh, he had actually been raised by his grandmother. And she fished for him, and she dug up tule bulbs, and she processed acorns. And they ate the traditional Indian diet. And then when his parents took him back, they introduced, you know, more conventional food and, and he turned into an alcohol and drug addict, which is what they were. But his grandmother, who was living on traditional food, uh, never got into any trouble at all. So he was delighted with the idea of nutrition because he knew from his own life, you know, there was another way of eating. And and sure enough, uh, he had a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience with us. I talk about him in, in both of my first books, The Diet Cure and The Mood Cure. Yeah, I remember that. We talked about, and we're throwing around a lot of jargon here about neurotransmitters. Talk about what a neurotransmitter is and just take us through the, I think it's four of them. Just take us through the four of them and Sure. Well, we know, everybody pretty much knows that the brain runs the show, you know, whether it's breathing, digesting, whatever it is, the brain is regulating everything. And mood and pleasure in response to sensations, like the sensation of eating, you know, of uh, getting a hug, of seeing a sunset, whatever, all of that pleasure chemistry is generated in the brain too. And What's extraordinary is both our mood and our ability to experience pleasure is regulated by the same four kinds of cells in the brain. These are special cells that send out messages of magic messages, really, of uh, happiness, of satisfaction. Um, and there are four of them, so we get particular four different kinds of happiness and four different kinds of, of uh, pleasurable uh, response. Uh, so it's a very rich array. And the, I, I consider them like the crown jewels of the brain are these uh, special cells that are called neurotransmitters because they transmit through these little nerve cells these incredible sensations. And so when we're well fed and, you know, only, you know, moderately stressed, uh, by life, uh, life being uh, sort of by definition stressful always from what I can gather, um, we can generate positive mood and really enjoy the most basic food tremendously. But if we're not well fed or our stress level has gone completely over the moon uh, or both, which is what's going on now, poor food and too much stress, then those neurotransmitters get underfed and they start to be, their function becomes subnormal. And what that means is instead of transmitting kind of a a baseline feeling of well-being, you know, just wake up in the morning, uh, hit the street and, and whistle, you know, that used to be pretty standard because, you know, just nor- that was a normal feeling is to f- have a pretty good sense of well-being. But with this deficiency now, we've we've developed, you know, negative moods. Instead of positive or neutral, we are negative, and that's 
these negative moods we experience are specific neurotransmitter deficiency symptoms. And what are the neurotransmitters deficient in? They're deficient in each one is, is, is dependent on a particular protein or amino acid, and they're deficient in the supplies of that amino acid. Now, the deficiency is really uh, accelerated since the 1970s when we added a whole new type of sugar, which has even more powerful brain effect um, than table sugar had. And our, our, our intake of table sugar had been going up uh, regularly every decade from the 1900s on, but we still didn't have a weight problem or degenerative disease or serious mood problems until after 1970, which is when we, we, uh, we were introduced to uh, high fructose corn syrup, high fructose agave syrup, high fructose sh uh, fruit syrup, and uh, they have a, a more powerful brain effect and body effect than the table sugar. So our uh, ability to maintain uh, our neurotransmitters has has really been challenged. And because these foods are so addictive, we're eating less and less of the protein that is our only source of amino acid fuel for these neurotransmitters. In the 70s, we became very suspicious of red meat or, or any meat because it contained saturated fat. And there was a big push towards vegetarianism then because we were very impressed with the the gurus from India who were advocating a vegetarian can, can I diet. stop you right there? Because I really want to ask you a question about that. Because sure. In the book, I know that you talk about eating meat, and it just seems like as a culture, there's not a day that I'm not on Facebook or something where someone is telling us not to eat meat. But I guess my question is, is you... They never say why, yeah, except never for say, ethical reasons. <laughs> yes, but you work with people all the time. Is it possible, and I'm not picking out my vegans out there. If you're a vegan, by all means, it's, it's all good. But is it possible to balance the brain chemistry without having some type of animal protein in your diet? Um, I'm sure it is. We don't see people who have been able to do that because obviously it wouldn't come to us, you know, if they were doing well. Um, and in almost every case, we've had to say, you know, you know, let's start with the amino acids, but we don't know what long-term dependence on amino acids would do because our clients typically take the amino acids for a certain number of months, don't need it anymore because they've increased their dense protein intake using animal protein, and they feel terrific, and they don't have any cravings, you know, and they can maintain that without the additional uh, amino supplementation. So, you know, what we say, we tell them that. We say, uh, we don't know whether you're going to be able to do as well if you, you know, remain vegan or even vegetarian in a lot of cases. So what happens is, you know, we give them the aminos, they experience an improvement, but they're still low energy and quite often they, you know, they just don't have the, the stamina and the vitality that they're looking for. And they're completely dependent on the aminos and can't go off of them. And we tell them, we don't know if it's even safe to take aminos, you know, indefinitely. Uh, what kind of a diet is it that requires you to take, you know, heavy supplementation for life? It's clearly not a, a really health sustaining diet. Uh, if it's missing these these critical um, nutrients, so we we ask them to you know introduce eggs, and they're usually you know okay with that. And just just as an experiment, you know, if this doesn't help them, then okay, they know that. But invariably, they feel so much better. Some of them, the first time they have red meat, they can actually feel it changing their brain chemistry, and they can feel the energy. And um, so we are omnivores. That means we need both animal 
and plant-based foods. That's my conclusion, and I think we what we really need is to go to get some perspective, some historical perspective on nutrition. When our when our bodies, when our weight, when our uh, level of degenerative disease was almost nil, we were eating meat and saturated fat and vegetables and fruits, and and other plant matter. It's only now, you know, since things have gone so bad, that we've been experimenting with more restrictive diets. You know, we're, we're on low-calorie low diets, which are, you know, not enough of any food. And then we've gone low-protein and low-saturated fat. So we've, you know, we're just doing this radical experimentation, whereas we we've, we can view the the whole history of mankind for two million years as, uh, you know, a largely meat-based culinary tradition, you know, with lots and mm-hmm. variations and combinations and amounts. So... Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, that does. Because I think you, when you look at society now, it's just, it's just this this war going on between the meat eaters and, and the vegans. And like you said, it's more of an ethical thing. And there's really, for me, I think that you can look for any science to support any argument that you want to have. It's clearly obvious that people have been doing that for a, a very long time. So that answers the question. Just off the cuff, Julia, what is your thought? You mentioned paleo before, but there's a, a real big interest in the ketogenic diet. I don't know if you've heard of that, but what, oh, if sure. you have, it's what, been what, big if you have, Atkins, late 70s. Yeah. So what what are your thoughts on that? Because I know that seems to be the new thing because first it was paleo and then now everybody's kind of branching out and going into ketogenic diet. Have you had any experience with that working with people in your clinic? Yeah, and we've, we've had some people coming to us who've been, you know, who've done both, who've done, you know, 10 or 20 different things. And the the, the real problem that, that they have universally is that they can't stay on any of it. They, they typically feel pretty good on a paleo diet or a ketogenic diet, but one of the, but as I say, they can't stay on it because what they crave is the carbs and they crave, uh, and sometimes it's because they're not eating enough carbs. I mean, we always ate carbs along with meat, you know, but, but roots and, uh, we had fruit, um, depending, you know, what part of the world we're talking about. But what, what they find with a ketogenic diet, in addition to wanting the carbs, which throw everything off, is, uh, and, and that's why the aminos come in, you know, and that's why I wrote The Craving Cure, so that people could stay away from the carbs and go towards, uh, you know, a diet that was going to, to really, uh, you know, restore their health. But the keto, one of the other problems uh, that the ketogenic uh, diet attempters find, have, uh, come to us anyway, is that they can't, they become really sort of disgusted with fat. They just can't eat anymore. They're, they're trying to eat too much, you know, these fat balls and so forth. It's not just part of the meals. You know, it's an additional uh, amount of fat that, that uh, a lot of people push themselves to ingest. And, and they develop an aversion. And, uh, and that's really too bad because, you know, fat is marvelous. And we've always been done very well on it. But again, it really is the balance and the individualization. You know, what's right for us as individuals? We are, we come from a, you know, genetic hodgepodge, geographic hodgepodge. Got to be careful. Uh, we can't just follow somebody else's idea and assume that it's going to work for us. Yeah, it's all, it's all on the individual basis. You have to find out what works for you. This is a question I want to ask you because no one has ever been able to answer it for me. And I saw it pop up in your book again. Women produce less serotonin, which is the happy, the happy drug for the brain. And I've never been told why women produce less serotonin. I'm going to ask you that question, see if you have an answer. And 
because they produce less serotonin, I'm going to assume that this is why women are more susceptible to things like depression and anxiety. And you can tell me if I'm right or wrong on that. Oh, no, I think you're right. And I, I think it's a fascinating dynamic, but it isn't only serotonin that, that women produce less of. It's also endorphin. So our natural pleasure-producing pain-killing, um, uh, they both are uh, dependent on a particular balance of estrogen and uh, progesterone with the other hormones. And, you know, women don't have a balance. <laughs> you know, by our very nature, we're, you know, we have to be unbalanced uh, in our childbearing years, you know, so that estrogen progesterone levels go up and down. And, and as we have become less and less well since the 1970s, our hormonal balance has, has been really diminished. Uh, you know, we've got these epidemics of PCOS and uh, infertility. and it's, We're just so, so deficiency of, of hormones is, uh, is a big problem. And one of the reasons that everyone becomes somewhat hormonally deficient, even males uh, now, uh, is that the more stress we're under, the more the adrenal glands, uh, which pr produce all of our hormones, in a, even the sex hormones, in addition to what's produced in the ovaries and testes, but but under stress, they just you know get derailed, and they've got to just make the stress hormones. You know, let's make adrenaline and, and cortisol. Forget about all the others. So our estrogen production, our progesterone production, testosterone production can all be sidetracked, and you know the regulation lost, and the, you know the optimal levels lost in the in the fray, literally. So your your hormones can affect your mood because I know in the book you were talking about you learned some things about hormones, uh, specifically <clears throat> thyroid hormone and other types of hormone, estrogen, progesterone, and what it seems like is that, like you were saying, we have this epidemic. You see more and more women with thyroid problems and obviously problems with, I've seen people, women who go into early menopause and, and different things of that nature. Yeah. So yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about hormones and how that plays in a more a role in our mood, because the big joke is don't mess with a woman on PMS, but you start, you're starting to see a lot of men with mood related problems. Because I myself used to be really moody. But, uh -huh. And I know a lot of guys who are moody, but what's going there, on? Yeah. What have you learned about hormones in, in your clinic? Well, there are two issues. I mean, uh, men can get uh, protein malnourished and, and overstressed, and uh, the the brain chemistry, the neurotransmitter output just can't keep up with it any more than it can keep up with, with women's. In terms of thyroid function, women are, are uh, a lot so far a lot more susceptible to dysregulation because they've done so much more low-calorie dieting. And that is, you know, the guaranteed way to slow down your thyroid is to not eat. It's, it's just a, a survival mechanism. It's an automatic, uh, you know, at some point, some people can get, get by with a few diets and, and bounce back uh, in terms of the metabolic rate, thyroid function, which runs the metabolic rate, largely. But eventually, you know, it could be the first diet, it could be the second diet, it could be the fourth diet. They start finding themselves gaining more weight. You know, they, they go on a starvation diet, they lose some weight, mostly muscle. And, and then it starts coming back and it keeps coming back and they end up gain, regaining more than, you know, they ever had to begin with because their thyroid has been disabled. And it's been disabled for a good reason because they've been starving and, and, and the, the body just becomes concerned. We've got to conserve our calories. We can't be burning our own flesh 
because uh, we're in a state of starvation and it could go on for years as famines have sometimes. And that, you know, famine uh, chemistry is what we're talking about here. The the thyroid is is an integral part of that. Going into just talking more about, I want to ask this question about blood sugar because it's very intriguing to me when you talk about blood sugar in the book of really balancing your blood sugar and how much effect that has on the brain. There was a time, uh, I think three or four years ago, I was looking at an interview with the Dr. Russell Baylock, and he was quoting a study. I can't remember the name of the study, but he quoted a study on prisoners. There were They did a prison, I think, Alabama, Mississippi, and in the study, all they did was change these prisoners' diet, and some of those gentlemen who were prisoners got out and they never committed crime again. So in relation to that and talking about hypoglycemia, which is low blood sugar, I've also heard that people who suffer from hypoglycemia are going to turn towards alcohol to kind of raise up their blood sugar. So how does that affect our moods and how is food really important? Because you mentioned food a lot in the beginning of the interview, and that's how you and I met through through testing for foods. So how does that all come in and how does that affect our mood? Well, the the brain is um, extraordinarily dependent on a very steady and constant blood sugar supply because there's no place in the brain, there's no room for storage. You know, the muscles have their own, you know, emergency glucose supply right there, and but the brain doesn't have that. So if there's not a nice stable amount of glucose circulating as it's supposed to, you know, all, all through the day and evening and, you know, an adequate amount in, into the night, those neurotransmitters uh, just don't function as well. They're they're not. They can't burn normally. They can't function normally without their glucose supply, which is their energy supply. So, you you have your amino acids, but you also need a certain amount of of glucose and a stable blood sugar supply. So we find that there are some very specific mood problems that result from you know, that are just part of hypoglycemia. You know, if you skip a meal, you're not going to feel good in between. You're going to be irritable and more easily stressed. You're going to have trouble with focus. You're going to be headachy, and those are, you know, all some of the common symptoms. You might, you know, you might even get faint. Common symptoms of hypoglycemia. And as I say, in addition to those, you know, just direct effects of hypoglycemia, we've got the secondary effects on the neurotransmitters, so that our other providers of a stable mood are not functioning normally because their their fuel supply is is uh, interrupted. And um, so we have a marvelous alternative here. It's one of the things I like about the ketogenic diet is there's more fat in it. And uh, mm-hmm. the fat is a marvelous stable supply of ketones, which are very much like glucose. And in fact, some uh, parts of the body like the heart, prefer ketones to glucose. They like that that fuel very much. So it's one of the reasons I like meat so much. It's like the perfect food. It has protein in it. It has saturated fat, you know, which which can be burned as like a carbohydrate could could be to make a fuel for the body like glucose. Uh, it's really a, a remarkable uh, fuel. But to get back on track, uh, where was I when I made that little digression? Oh, about the blood sugar. So, so if 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 we're not eating a diet that keeps uh, our blood sugar stable, and, and we certainly aren't now. Most people don't eat real meals more than once a day now, twice at the most. So there's a lot of low blood sugar juggling going on and then alternating with, with blood sugar that's too high when we compensate with high sugar, high starch foods. So what we found that is so remarkable is another amino acid that 
itself is uh, a magnificent fuel, at least as good as glucose or ketones, for fueling our cells. And, uh, you know, it's almost miraculous. We have a, another little a protein that can be used as, as, a, as a fuel uh, to uh, make up for, for glucose lacks. Uh, and that amino acid is glutamine and works instantly to uh, provide the brain with the fuel that it needs and those hypoglycemic uh, cravings and other negative symptoms just disappear in minutes. Yeah, talk about, because I was just going to ask you that about the, uh, you mentioned glutamine and glutamine is also good, I've I've heard, for gut gut healing as well, which is where the serotonin is produced. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, talk incredible. About, talk well, about serot- serotonin, the- yeah, uh, there's more more serotonin needed for gut function than for brain function by about mm-hmm. 90 to 10%. Yeah, talk about some of those other amino acids that help with, with, with the other uh, neurotransmitters. Mood. Yeah, with yeah. the other neurotransmitters. And then I guess the second part of that question, because I know we're getting up here on time, is and maybe you can answer this one first. If someone is addicted to alcohol, drugs, even coffee, is that a kind of a warning sign that something's going on with the neurotransmitters? Oh, absolutely. There's nobody addicted to those kinds of substances who doesn't have a neurotransmitter deficiency problem. If they were producing normal amounts of neurotransmitters, they would feel terrific. They would have no need for drugs or alcohol. But the same exact thing uh, is true for the drug sugar, especially now that it's, it, you know, more than half of the sugar we take in is this high fructose stuff. So we're we're being drugged by our diet now, and, and all of the science concurs all the brain science now is saying yep it's exactly the same dynamic we see the same thing on the brain scans after they've had sugar as after they've had heroin or alcohol or you know um, cocaine whatever so correcting that brain chemistry is the first order of business for anybody struggling with with an addiction problem Um, and in the craving cure although the the primary target of my new book is food craving and uh, you know sugar and refined refined food addiction, um, all of the same guidelines for the use of amino acids apply whether you're, the substance that, that is addicting you is, is sugar and or alcohol or opiates or, or cocaine or pot or whatever. Um, so there are four amino acids, one for each of the neurotransmitters that could be deficient. And we've got a brilliant questionnaire. Been developing it uh, for 30 over 30 years. I've used it to guide uh, our successful treatments for, for, with over 4,000 <clears throat> food addicts and and many alcohol and drug addicts as well. And the, the uh, my books all begin with with a questionnaire that that we've developed so that you know which parts of your own brain chemistry are in trouble. You may not need all the amino all all five of the amino acids. Maybe your blood sugar is okay, but it's only uh, the serotonin that's off. And uh, it's very easy to, to determine that by the deficiency symptoms that are well known for each of the neurotransmitters. And uh, so the questionnaire takes about five minutes. And then you've got this life-saving information. And then that when you know which neurotransmitters you need to refuel, then you just uh, go into the books and, and uh, it's very easy to, to find what fuel they need, which amino acid, for example, uh, if serotonin is a problem, especially around this time of year, because serotonin is, is a neurotransmitter that is enhanced by light. So the dark time is, times of the year, physiologically, everybody's serotonin levels drop. That's really why this is such a difficult time of year and people reach for the junk food and reach for alcohol and so forth even more than usual. But we can take a sunny amino acid 
tryptophan or two, it comes in two forms, uh, plain tryptophan or 5-hydroxy-tryptophan, 5-HTP. And we get, you know, within 24 hours, we've got a tremendous relief of the mood issues, the cravings, all of it um, is relieved and uh, fine-tuning the amino acids, uh, we can get rid of all of the symptoms. And, and so... Wait. Um, with with the uh, amino acids, I found this uh, really uh, intriguing as well in the book that you don't have to take them all the time. Like for most medications, when we're depressed, if someone on a depression medication, it feels like they have to take them all the time. But with the amino acids, and for life, yeah, for <laughs> life. With the amino acids, you said in the book that you will balance out and you will know when to stop taking them. And I thought that was very enlightening. Well, it's the the. The craving cure, in particular, has such detailed instructions, and the the final set of instructions for each of the amino acids is when do you quit taking it? And uh, so, after a few months on a re- on it on a regular basis, whatever amino acid you need, you just stop. And if your symptoms come back, whether it's in 24 hours or two weeks, then you know you've stopped a little prematurely, and you go back on for a while, and then you know after a few months you stop again and. By that time, uh, you probably won't need it anymore. All of this being contingent, though, on having adopted a diet that has adequate amounts of protein for you and your brain's needs. And so the craving cure, it came out December 12th of this year. And I'm going yeah, to, two days I'm ago. To, yeah, two days Perfect ago. Perfect timing. Tuesday. <laughs> and I'm going to put some information out on my, my page about this. And I would love to Thank have you. you back on to talk about this as well, because love I know that, that this is probably amalgamation of the mood cure, the diet cure, and now you have the craving cure. And it looks like I haven't gotten a chance to read it, but it looks like from really going through it that it's a lot. It's kind of like a progression from things that you learn from the first two books. Like it's a little bit more in depth and kind of like a little bit more to me, a little bit more simplified, if I can say that. Which well, is, it's, which is always yeah. Good. There's more. There's more detail in how to use the aminos so that yes. you don't have to guess and experiment with yourself as much. And and everybody should know that there's a, a cravingcure.com, a website that has the introduction of the book and, and the table of contents so you can get an idea of it. It also has a questionnaire. So that's kind of a fun thing to look at while you're deciding whether you want to order the book or not. Yeah, so if we if we are craving, I asked you a question about drugs and alcohol and all that stuff, but if we are craving stuff, that says something about our mood as well, right? Oh, in terms of food? Yeah. That, of oh, food, yes. Yeah. Uh, when we're craving junk food, that's a desperate cry from our brain saying we are starving for something to make us feel good. And although junk food has no nutritional value, you know, or very little other than calories, um, it has a brain effect. So it sort of forces those brain sites in the brain to to produce, you know, some serotonin or, or endorphin or whatever, uh, GABA, uh, whatever we're deficient in, uh, just briefly. And we get a big, you know, pleasant experience from it, but then we go back to below normal. And so we naturally crave, you know, because uh, we know the difference. We feel terrific under the influence uh, and we don't feel good without it. But if we can take these amino acids, fix those brain sides, then we can generate normal amounts of positive mood. We don't need the junk food, the comfort food, or the, you know, the, the, the highs from, uh, from alcohol and drugs. So it seems to me, and this is my last question, it seems to me that from a perspective of food, food is really important in combination with the amino acids to really get yourself 
back in balance and get your your mood back in balance. And for the the gist of the population, most of us are still eating a lot of junk food, and therefore the offshoot of that is that you know our moods are not stable. And you're seeing that consistently in in society when people are out there just going off for no reason. They get mad at a, a hair trigger or most of the society is depressed. Is, is that a fair assumption? It is. And when you think that we're pretty much alternating between a lot of junk food, which doesn't feed the brain, but just drugs it for temporary you know, satisfaction, um, but we alternate that with low-calorie dieting where we don't eat enough of anything, you can see how we're we're really in a very strange high calorie starvation mode and uh and and in that kind of state you know you can't generate positive mood you can't generate positive genetic programming you know it's just not possible uh, you know optimal function depends on optimal diet yeah it's just just reading your book it just made me more aware of why men are are moody and having emotional problems and why you know you see a lot of women who are ha- still having a lot of emotional battles with depression and and all kinds of other things mainly diet sure, panic but, anxiety uh, yeah yeah you see that a, a lot you know it's a number one complaint it's an, from it's a lot just of inevitable we can't eat a a, a nutrient free diet and expect to function well but somehow we have thought that our mood was sort of independent of our bodies um, we thought of it as just psychological. You know, if life's going good, then we'll feel good. But it turns out that's not true. Even if things are going well, we don't necessarily feel good if our if our brain isn't well fueled. Mm-hmm. The brain is good, and the the craving cure was out December twelfth, which was Tuesday. And I think <laughs> you mentioned earlier about the the site. Tell tell us of the site again to go to the in order to be able. Oh, to... Oh, cravingcure.com. Okay. Uh, to get the questionnaire and uh, and to read something from from the book to get a sense of it. Okay. The and other, I'm assuming uh, that it's on a site that has all of the information, all the books on it. So okay. you can just you know uh, go right from looking at craving cure to mood cure or diet cure. Yeah, and like all of my books, I get them from Amazon. So I'm assuming you can go to Amazon or sure. uh, Barnes and Nobles and, and order the book there. If you are someone oh. who is suffering from craving, but I would advise everybody and recommend everybody to get all three of your books because I know Thank the you. mood cure has, has so much information in there. Yeah. About if mood is an issue. Them. Yeah. It's, it's really an important one. And, and the diet cure has a lot of uh, information that neither of the other books have in it. For example, about thyroid. It's it's one of the few, I can say this honestly, one of the few sources of good information on how to assess your thyroid function and what to do about it if it's not yeah. optimal. Yeah, it's a lot of women out there who have thyroid issues. And I think mm-hmm. men have some thyroid issues as well. But Julia yeah. Ross, thank you so much for your time. And like I said, I would love to have you back on to talk about The Craven Cure because I know that's your newest book. And I know I kind of stretched your brain from a book from 2003. <laughs> but but uh, I thought that the book was really pertinent because I think it's more pertinent today than it was in 2003 because I know personally a lot of people who are suffering depression and like we said with the holidays that depression seems to escalate even more so so thank you for being on well it's always a pleasure talking to you Darren so well I'll be glad to do it again 
Yeah, we got to go get you back in the craving cure, and we're going to talk a little bit more about. Uh, I didn't get a chance to touch on food sensitivity and allergies, which is that's how. We oh, met. that would be fun. Yeah, so we'll, when you come back on, we'll get a little bit more in depth into that. But thank you so okay. much, and, and enjoy your evening. Thank you. Enjoy the holidays, Darren. You too. Happy holidays. Bye bye. Bye. All right, a live show tonight, but I think what I'm going to do is download this show and then actually do some audio enhancements to it just to make it sound a little bit better because I know when I used to do the shows live, the audio was not always the best, and that's why I went to really record things on Skype. So hopefully you got something out of the show, the mood cure, something that I'm going to do. I used to do it, and I need to probably go back on this 5-HTP, which she talked about, but probably start doing it myself again just to I'm always pretty in a pretty even mood but I know I have my cravings now and then as well and would love to knock those out so hopefully you enjoyed the show this has been Darren McDuffie alias fat man helping you become perfectly healthy and toned I'll see you next time thank you